this is uh, Jim with an intro to remind you to pl- Man, was that... How did I turn into Andrew Dice Clay all of a sudden? That was bizarre. Anyway, hi. I'm here to remind you about NowPlayingNetwork.net, where you can find a variety of fantastic podcasts that I wholeheartedly support. So, if you feel so inclined... Um, there's also a donation link over at nowplaynetwork.net. Throw a few bones our way to help pay for server fees and whatnot, and you will most likely get a special treat in the mail. Uh, I'm toying around the possibility of going Patreon, um, simply due to the fact that I'll be taking some time off from my job next month and could use a little help. But again, this is not something I'm going to impulsively just decide on overnight it's something i'm just considering but in the meantime i would like you to check out the latest episodes um including supporting characters because yours truly was just interviewed by friend and recent guest bill ackerman well he's frequent guest i should say and he does a wonderful job putting these episodes together so give them your time and attention and uh, you'll get to learn about uh, why I am such a movie nerd. Mm. It's a bi-weekly podcast that uh, I hope you have already subscribed to because if you're a fan of this show there's a strong possibility you might enjoy um, the interviews that Bill conducts with a lot of fantastic talent. You'll also learn a lot from a wonderful new podcast that is four episodes in now. It is Tracks of the Damned from Patrick Rapole. His last two episodes were on films I happen to think are uh, pretty underrated. Oculus and Lake Mungo in particular. And if you download the Lake Mungo episode, you'll hear a surprise contribution that I made that I'm I'm pretty proud of. And I'm glad that it uh, complimented uh, Patrick's incredible insights as always. So do subscribe to Tracks of the Damned. And uh, in addition, we got Movie Madness. That's going to return later this week. I assume Vinyl Emergency will also be returning this week or the next. In the meantime, check out Fresh Perspective, hosted by Rebecca and Jeff. Their latest episode is on a film that is chock full of um, elements to parse and mull over. And that would be Sidney Lumet's very heralded network. So, speaking of network, visit nowplayingnetwork.net. And one final uh, plug here, I encourage you to go to thegreatalbumspodcast.com since I made an appearance on Bill and Brian's wonderful podcast called The Great Albums, in which they do a track-by-track analysis of records they think are really great. I'll include a link in the show notes, of course, but um, I had the distinct pleasure of talking about my favorite album of all time, which is... Exile in Guyville by Liz Fair. It was a real joy. It was a real joy talking with those guys and uh, sort of dissecting the career of Liz Fair as well as going through the entire album and uh, sort of uh, capturing our initial responses to each song. Um, and her music means so much to me to this very day. It's it's uh, Exile has a special place in my life in general. So I hope you will check out this episode and. Uh, many others to come. Got some great shows coming your way. More um, guest appearances and uh, more Directors Club coming your way! Um, <laughs> so fill up your iPods, your iPhones, your Pokemons, your Walkmans, your Kindles, your Spindles, your hard drives with all of this wonderful content that I hope you enjoy. 
And uh, speaking of enjoyment, I loved talking about Alex Cox, a director I was um, uh, fairly familiar with based on only only two films of his that I've seen, um, probably the films he's most known for. Uh, And I had checked out a few more, of course, for this episode, obviously, and it was one uh, title in particular, Highway Patrolman, that my uh, excellent guest, Philip O'Neill, suggested that I check out right before we recorded, and I did. Um, But it's also on the suggestion from my favorite director, Paul Thomas Anderson, who a couple years ago showed scenes from some of his favorite movies at the New York Film Festival, I believe, uh, and it included Repo Man, which is a film I've always loved. And uh, I briefly included a a quick clip of PTA (laughs) talking about that particular film uh, and his perspective on it. It's just, um, it's a special film in so many ways that we dive into right off the top um, after the intro here with Philip. So I hope you enjoy this conversation, and um, here's an episode about British cult director Alex Cox. Diet Pepsi, buy it because you're a consumer. everyone, and welcome to the Directors Club Podcast. I am Jim Laskowski. This episode is brought to you by Crystal Meth Pepsi. Pepsi is not only the choice of a new generation, but it is made from 100% real sugar for healthy teeth, bones, and tissue. So you can't beat the refreshing taste of Crystal Meth Pepsi. And with that, I'm excited to talk to a newcomer, a guest that um, I've uh, mostly just chatted with digitally via Facebook Messenger, but um, I, I couldn't be more thrilled. I've spoken with a number of guests from Canada and potentially some other countries, but this is the first time I've had somebody on from Sweden. I would like to welcome Philip O'Neill. Hello, Jim. Thank you for having me. So off the top of my head, my guess is that Sweden has way better health care than we do? Yes. Yes. Okay, that's what and I can- And Canada too, right? Yes. Yes. <laughs> so in the midst of this recording, you were in production on a short film, if I'm not mistaken. But uh, since you're new to the show, just tell me more about your creative endeavors or what turned you into a film fanatic or, you know, you want to be a filmmaker in, in your own right. So just, just to give a little background. Well, you know, uh, my love for film, difficult to say where it exactly started. I mean, I, I grew up with movies, of course, like anybody else. Sure. Um, you know, with VHS. And my, my father, he, he's, a, he's a film lover. He introduced me to a lot of old films, uh, like the Bond films and Jerry Lewis comedies. <laughs> uh, so, and I, I've always enjoyed, like, classic films, films from, like, go back to the 70s. I was never somebody who was like, oh, no, I don't want to watch a black and white film, you know. I was always fascinated by anything that I would see on TV mm-hmm. uh, or, you know, just whatever. Uh, my father had 
what do you call it? Recorded certain uh, movies on VHS, I guess you could call it. Uh, sure. Yeah. So I would like go through the, the shelf and find like all these different films there. And my sister also really enjoys films. And, uh, it was especially I especially like got into horror films. That was one way of kind of exploring is also the you know older films. Yeah, looking at your blog, I noticed that you're a huge fan of just uh, genre films and horror films in particular. You wrote about yeah. them oh, yeah. in the past. Oh, yeah, and I, I actually hated horror films when I was a kid. You know, they gave me nightmares. <laughs> yeah. But then I saw something like Fright Night by Tom Holland. Nice. And that was just like, what, what the hell is this? This is funny. This is like subversive. And it's, you know, it's about a kid who watches horror movies. And discovers his neighbor's a vampire. Easy to relate to, then. Yeah, it, it was really unusual, and that was fun. I was like not cowering behind my couch or something. It was just so after that, and I started watching, uh, and then another film I saw, which believe it or not, was Jason X. Which <laughs> oh wow, yeah, I saw a commercial for that film on TV. Some guy sitting in a dark room, and then he looks into a mirror, and there is the hockey mask. And I went, wait a minute, I recognize that. Hockey mask, where have I seen that? You know, because Jason's like parodying every single cartoon or whatever, comic books. So I would watch Jason X, and I was like, oh my God, what the hell is this? I have to see more <laughs> this. So I tracked down Jason X on DVD, watched the film, and there's this special feature on there called The Many Lives of Jason Voorhees, where they would like, it was this documentary where they, where they had like Joe Bob Briggs and all kinds of horror gurus talking about the genre, older films, and and I was just, like, fascinated by this. Like, at some point, like, all these different slasher titles will come up on the screen. My Bloody Valentine's Day and you know, April Fool's Day, all these titles. And I was like, whoa. What it's like a whole new world, you know, opening up. So I was just, I got to watch more of these films, as old as they are, you know. Yeah. And I, at some point, I started to develop an interest in, um, well, other genres, not just horror. Uh, and I can't remember exactly when that was, but... Uh, I'm, of course, I'm also part of the DVD generation. And over the years, I've just uh, had a very, I guess you might call it, an, an unhealthy obsession with cinema. Uh, it's just, it's my favorite art form. It's, I think it's the ultimate art form, actually. Uh, I, it's, I completely agree with that. I mean, as much as I love music and composing mm-hmm. music, mm-hmm. it's it's just a, a, an amalgam of all these different elements coming together that just speak to me every time yeah yeah it's a you know a mix of images uh you know uh yeah yeah, music and literature architecture all these different things and acting as well as i think an art form uh so yeah it's just it's an amazing medium uh unfortunately not the norm doesn't think so you know because uh movies are you know it's so mainstream so many people enjoy it and the more sort of Already, kind of films, more unusual films are kind of something that only film uh, geeks, you know, like us, maybe. So you also got into editing um, at uh, some point because I looked, <laughs> I looked up here, and um, you you were writing a lot for your Swedish cinemasochist blog, <laughs> and uh, you were mentioned on the Clive Barker cast. Mm-hmm. That's interesting yeah. to me because. Nightbreed is a movie that has kind of a special place in my heart. I don't think it's a great film, um, but it's it's funny because <laughs> that's that's where my uh, first band in high school. That's wh- that's how we got our name, um, Midian. <laughs> and, and so you know, there's a, there, there's certainly a lot of things I do love about that movie, including just casting David Cronenberg and all sorts of stuff. <laughs> but 
Um, I see that you put together a fan edit of your own at some point. Yeah, fan editing is something I started with a long time ago. I think I was trying to fix Rob Zombie's Halloween or something. Um, <laughs> and then I started working on Hellraiser 2. And then I wanted to try and reconstruct Exorcist 3, actually. Try to create, recreate uh, Blatty's original cut of that film. Oh, cool. Uh, yeah, which somebody else actually did. So I kind of left mine on the, on the shelf. <laughs> and now they're releasing a director's cut. Uh, Screen Factory is releasing a director's cut. Oh, uh, nice. Yeah, I got to pick that up. I'm, yeah. I'm a big fan of Exorcist 3. Yeah, I, I was fascinated by that film. I, when I picked up the book, Legion, to read that. Uh, but Nightbreed was a film I was... That was a film I just instantly fell in love with. It was just so out there, so wild and fantastical. And, yeah. so I, and of course, I want to see a director's cut, which... Uh, took a long time before that there were all these there was this cabal cut this uh, edit put together by uh, f- friends of Clive Barker saw that at a convention in Germany and uh, and I was like well the quality wasn't that good but you know if they can just they're going to restore it it's going to look going to be great and then I saw the director's cut and I was quite disappointed by it because it's like where is all the stuff that I saw in the cabal where all the like it has the original ending but there's still things missing that makes that ending work for mm-hmm. me so I, at some point, I just started to work on this uh, sort of reconstruction of the film uh, using a program called Sony Vegas Pro 13. Ooh, I'm a big fan of Sony Vegas, actually. I know a lot of people, you know, sing the praises. First, Final Cut Pro, and then it was Adobe yeah. Premiere. Oh, yeah. uh, but I've been using Sony Vegas for a while, actually. Yeah, it's, it's pretty good. It's, uh, and uh, and if, you buy, if you bought Nightbreed on Blu-ray, the limited edition, there are all this uh, deleted scenes on there, like outtakes, something mm-hmm. like that. And I looked at all this stuff going like, wow, there's so much here. You know, I could maybe do something with this. And I initially I started out just going to do like maybe a 20-minute thing or something. But then uh, I decided, you know what, I'm going to try and maybe get a hold of those work prints. And I contacted the editor who did the Cabal Cut, and he, I told him what I, what I wanted to do, and he was like, sure, take him, do it. I mean, wow. where's, where's the harm in that? And, I, and he sent me two work prints that were over two and a half hours long, and it was amazing for a fan of like myself because it was just it was the movie completely uncut basically. Um, so it was like it was work prints, so scenes extended, you know, in their full length, and I could basically go through the scenes and edit them to my liking, and recreate a whole new version of the film that had a different pace to it. But it's, I still want, of course, to work as a film and not feel like you know a bloated fan edit. Um, but it's different from the director's cut, I would say, in that it's just kind of broadens certain aspects of the story and certain the ca- main characters are I think you feel more for them now uh, I love mm-hmm. Cronenberg in the part but Cronenberg's character is if you read the book that it's based on it is it, a slightly different character in the book than how he, he was ultimately presented the studio cared more about the Cronenberg character you might know about, about this that they were more interested in the slasher right, right. which is funny because Cronenberg it, Bar- Clive Barker was so tired of slasher films by that point. He wanted to make because he was like he loved monster films. He wanted to bring back the monster genre, and he that's and the reason why there's a slasher character because it's kind of uh, Clive Barker kind of fighting the slasher genre, you know. Oh so yeah, then, that makes sense. Yeah, and he wanted to kill it off at the end and kind of go, all right, fuck off. Now let's make monster films. <laughs> Unfortunately, the studio said no, the, the monster genre doesn't work. You know, what people want to see is obviously Friday for Teen. So let's bring yeah. him back at the end. <laughs> And Kalibaki was, of course, kind of destroyed by that. Kind of a shame. It's, and he wanted to make it Star Wars of horror films. He wanted to make it trilogy films. And, you know, I like to think that somewhere there's a parallel universe out there where we got 
all these great Nightbreed sequels and no, none of those bad shouldn't have been sequels, you know? <laughs> yeah, um, no, that's, that's a good point. That's really interesting. Just, you know, my, my former co-host Patrick and I, we saw the Cabal cut um, on the big screen, but even, even the footage they incorporated into it was really, you could tell immediately um, when they cut to uh, footage that was on a different reel or it just it looked the quality deteriorated yeah i i had two workprints and the one workprint actually looks better than the, that one you've seen yeah okay the cabal cut they only used the one workprint which was the longest version which i understand why they used it but it had worse the quality was worse it clearly it must have been an influence on guillermo del toro you know like it's some of the creatures that it's a, del toro's come up with is are similar to barker yeah, you know, it's funny. I know he's a fan of Clyde Barker, but I've tried, I've searched everywhere for Nightbreed and Del Toro, and I can't, I can't find a single interview with Del Toro where he talks wow. about Nightbreed, which yeah. is bizarre. It it's is. so strange. Well, maybe we'll save that conversation for next year another time, because I, yes. I, it'd be interesting to talk about Clyde Barker, um, even though he's only wanna, made a few films. Do you want to watch Rawhead Rex? Yeah, why not? <laughs> <laughs> We're here today, though, to talk oh. about an incredible director. We're going to be talking about Alex Cox, and I've been a huge fan of Repo Man for mm. a long, long time, and been very curious to learn more about him. Yeah, um, <laughs> there's so much to talk about in regards to, I mean, even just as even just the three main films, I guess you would consider his most essential, or at least the ones that he's people know him for, which are Rupert uh, Man, Sid and Nancy, and Walker. Yes, I would, I, would, I would also maybe say Highway Patrolman because it also represents a shift in his sort of filmmaking style. Yeah, so. yeah. No, now now that I've seen it. Um, which I'm very happy about. I can sense that he went in a different direction. I mean, Walker was a huge bomb, critically, box office-wise. Um, yeah, and he was, uh, he was basically blacklisted. Yeah. He was supposed to do The Running Man, actually, and they wouldn't let him because of uh, Walker. Yeah, so. see, that's interesting to me. I could see him doing, yeah, like a Stephen King adaptation or RoboCop, for example. Yeah. Like it's I funny just, because the guy who wrote Robocop was actually, I think, the, the cinematographer on his like first student film, Michael Miner. So, <laughs> wow, yeah, yeah, small but world. Another studio. I mean, he he tried to get back into the studio system in the '90s with something like The Winner, but that just didn't work. That was of course recut, and his version is sort of not really available to see. But he also was going to make Marsh Attacks. Oh my god! 
<laughs> that's Imagine. bizarre. <laughs> that would be that would have been interesting. Well, that's a good that's a good segue into his his debut film with Aliens. <laughs> yes, I always yeah. try. I always try to figure out a way to make the conversation uh, a little bit more seamless. But wow. yeah, you know, in 1984, this British director and he was self proclaimed as a radical filmmaker, managed to get the backing of a monkey, Michael Nesmith, (laughs) (laughs) and also got some help from Universal Studios as well to make what I would consider to be one of the great American satires. A lot of people don't realize what's really going on. They view life as a bunch of unconnected incidents and things. They don't realize that there's this life lattice of coincidence that lays on top of everything. The punk movement had a lot of songs that were anti-Reagan. A lot of protest songs and concerts throughout the country. And that sentiment sort of fueled um, Cox to make this story into something bigger and more fully realized. I mean, he definitely wanted to pay homage to early sort of nuclear paranoia films for the 80s, essentially. And and also maybe a little bit of Kiss Me Deadly. Yeah, yeah, for sure, with the the glowing (laughs) trunk. Yeah, which, of course, Tarantino would later um, use himself. But, you know, you could tell, watching this, how much he's influenced a lot of my favorite directors, like Tarantino and Paul Thomas Anderson. Um, just, Just that sort of go for broke nature and weird choices throughout that don't seem forced. They seem fully realized in this universe that Cox yeah. has created here. Well, you know, he is, I read somewhere, uh, somebody said like, he is to filmmaking what punk is to rock and roll. <laughs> yeah. I can see that. <laughs> yeah. He's so, anarch. that's the word I'm looking for. Anarchist. I, anarchic, I guess. Yeah, an- anarch- yeah. Anarchic, I think. Yeah. He's so in his, I mean, I watched this film and I'm, I love, I mean, I, 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 I'm a big fan of his, but I'm trying to figure out what is his style really because it's so wild. You know, it's, you think, okay, you got him down, but then suddenly he makes another film completely entirely, you know, different film. Yeah, he's, he's definitely one of the, those directors uh, that sort of debunked the auteur theory and that I, mm. I mean, there's elements clearly that you can pinpoint throughout each of his films that you can say, well, that, Maybe just that sort of um, social critique or political critique of America is kind of prevalent throughout most of his films. Oh yeah, it's very evident through Walker, especially. Then. Yeah, yeah, that's <laughs> it's pretty much uh, um, holding up protest signs throughout that entire movie, which <laughs> is not a problem in my opinion. Because uh, we'll get to that, but I think what's also fascinating is the fact that you know he's he's pretty for being sort of this rebellious punk um anarchic filmmaker he does have uh i mean he chooses to employ the cinematographer for paris texas for this film so you get interesting shots of barren landscapes and, you know, just how alienating 
that could be for certain individuals like Otto, played by uh, Emilio Estevez here, which is yeah. definitely his best role, for sure. It, yeah, it must be. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what I've seen of this. Uh, probably his most, I mean, definitely his, uh, as far as films goes, is probably his best film as well. Yeah, I would think so. I mean, I, I didn't really follow his career. Um, what maybe- happened to it? What happened to it? Did Maximum Overdrive kill it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, either that or Men at Work. Um, oh. <laughs> yeah, like I said, the cinematography in this is c- kind of amazing. As yeah. I'm watching this on Blu-ray, I'm just kind of like, yeah, this... <laughs> it's funny to see the great Harry Dean Stanton in the same year, no less, in one of my top five favorite movies, Paris, Texas, and then this, where he's playing... Um, a very vocal character, just sort of taking the role of mentor for Otto, that yeah. I just adore. I shall not cause harm to any vehicle, nor the personal contents thereof, nor through inaction let that vehicle or the personal contents thereof come to harm. It's what I call the repo code, kid. Don't forget it. Etch it in your brain. Do you know who was the original choice for that? Was it Dennis Hopper? Yes, that's right, Dennis Hopper, because he was a big, Alex Cox was a big fan of Dennis Hopper. So yeah, he that, looks a lot like the the main, the main guy um, at the beginning. Uh, I, I forgot the actor's name. You know, he's he, he's driving the the Chevy with the quote unquote alien slash glowing. Um, yes, which light. is an amazing opening sequence. As soon it as sure that, is. As soon as you you like, wait a minute, what the hell is this? <laughs> you just it. You grabbed right away, you know, and you just want to see where is this going, what's happening. This was your exposure to Alex Cox, right? Yeah, you saw absolutely. Met. Yeah, for me too. Yeah, I, I rented this with my friends, and we loved it. I mean, we. <laughs> this is a very quotable movie, to where <laughs> I know, you know, it's like. <laughs> I don't know how many times we were trying to decide what to what to eat, and of course we would go. Uh, let's go get sushi and not pay for it. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Let's go get sushi and, and not pay. Everything about this movie, I I respond to, either in this, you know, comedic, satirical light, or um, as a filmmaker, as an, edi- as an editor, the cinematography, because I, th- I love the portrayal of Los Angeles like this. And I think that's why... Um, Paul Thomas Anderson actually cited this as an influence for Inherent Vice and the way it captures like this sort of grungy, neon, lit city at night. Just like the sort of the underground Los Angeles, mm. the, the less glamorous side of it. As it is like very familiar. I saw burned out hippie parents and kids, new guys like this with flat tops and the shirt tied around their waist in the, in the suburbs of the San Fernando Valley and kind of punk rock and kind of not and kind of, you know, aimless and sort of product of hippie parents who weren't paying attention. So that's one element of this movie that I guess ties into Inherent Vice. But tabling that directing in this scene, there is such abandon in this movie, but, but it's focused, it's funny, it's outlandish. Um, I mean, it's just kind of brilliant. And I'm so taken with the scene where he first um, goes home and talks to his parents. <laughs> or they're watching some religious. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the 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 uh, evangelist on TV says something like, "I do want your money because God wants your money." 
So I want you to go out and mortgage that home and sell that car and send me your money. You don't need that car. Thankfully, we don't have that kind of uh, shows in Sweden. <laughs> no, you don't. <laughs> I don't. I hope they're not as prevalent as they were back then. I, I would hope not, because a lot of those uh, televangelists have been. <laughs> I don't. I guess the term could be debunked, but they, you know, they're just, they're just scam artists. Yeah, I think people yeah. realize that by now. They're not as naive. I, I would hope, anyway. Otto is a really interesting. Mm. I don't know if he's. I don't know if he's necessarily an antihero. I mean, he's, he starts but out as kind of a dick. He's a he's a punk. Yeah, yeah. I mean, but he's also like I don't know, like a Holden Caulfield for the '80s in a way, where he's that, he's real, and he yeah, does, but, and he's unfettered. <laughs> he just he just sort of just says whatever is on his mind. Yeah, I'm trying to think of any other like films of that time because he's supposed to be what a teenager or something. Yeah, mm-hmm. right. I'm trying to think of other teenage films, but this one is like there's something about his character. I mean, obviously this film, uh, punks obviously love love this film uh, for its atti- for its punk attitude, you know. Right. But I think it also it works for anybody because there are you know people like Otto who just have this like you know, fuck the world, you know, fuck ordinary people, as he says, you know, I hate ordinary people, you know, like, it's just kind of like, ah, I'm just, I'm not fitting in with the rest of, you know, society, and, uh, and that's what you respond to, I think, so it's not simply for, really not just for punks, but it's for, you know, anybody, I think, yeah, like Otto, you know, they're, they're out there, you know. <laughs> oh, yeah, that anger, that, I, the frustration you feel with the rest of the world sort of seeps through the comic tone of the film and the soundtrack complements everything in such a beautiful way and even even um the guy that plays i think his name is kevin his friend oh yeah he's <laughs> he went on to be one of the members of the circle jerks which is kind of it's kind of cr- kind of incredible uh wait is the guy with, is, it, is he the nerd the yeah guy? Yeah, he's the, he's the tall nerd at the beginning. Um, the last person you'd expect to see in a punk band. But, uh, yeah, yeah, he went on to be in the Circle Jerks. Um, I really love the introduction of Harry Dean Stanton in this, where he's just driving by and just decides, hey, this guy over here, let's, let's <laughs> I want to take him for a ride and show him the ropes and the way he says, I, I got to get my wife's car out of this bad area. <laughs> <laughs> but Harry Dean Stanton, I mean, he is just. I think it was Ebert might have said like, if Her- if you see Harry Dean Stanton in the credits, you know it's going to be at least something good about the film. Yeah, yeah. He's always he's always great. He's just absolutely fantastic. Just character actors who is just I don't know how to put it, but he's just so uh, relaxed. I mean, he never. He's one of those you don't see him acting. You know, he's like Harvey Keitel. He, he doesn't seem to be acting. You know. Yeah. Very, yeah, he's just, he's just, he's just natural. Just, yeah, and this is probably his. I mean, this is his like definitive role. I think <laughs> as the Repo Man. Yeah, this in Paris, Texas. I think it's funny that they came out in the same year and had the same cinematographer. Where <laughs> it's 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 the perfect Harry Dean Stanton double feature because you see the range that he's capable of. He does dark comedy beautifully. He does these this restrained humanistic drama with Paris, Texas so beautifully that you know it just show it goes to show that 
you know, these character actors are sometimes better than the big names. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, but I'm curious, too, from your perspective, especially coming from a different country, watching, I mean, watching this through American eyes, I guess you could say, there's just so many different things going on where I see it, I don't necessarily see it as an anti-conservative film, but it's certainly anti-Reagan, and it's fueled by, like I mentioned, the fear of Cold War at the time. Um, Mm -hmm. I mean, obviously those are plot elements to some degree, but did you see this as like a countercultural statement in a way? Uh, Yeah, I do I do think I felt so first time I saw it. I, for me, when I saw it the first time, I was just I, most of all taken by the um, just the the spirit of the film and the unusual dialogue and uh, it was just it. it I mean, I, when I try to sell this film to some, you know, to get my friends to see this film, uh, I tell them like, look, imagine if something like a mix of like uh, Tarantino and David Lynch is how I describe it for some. That's people, good. You know? Yeah. Yeah, it, it has that like Twin Peaks, you know, like that. Everybody's really weird, but they're natural at the same time. You know, like they're some of the characters are they have some of the most hysterical dialogue, and yet they, I mean, like the part about John Wayne being gay, you know, <laughs> which is just <laughs> it's, it's just so odd conversations they have in the film, which is actually something that you see in many other Alex Cox films, you know, uh, very quirky. You know, it's a very quirky film and. I just I wasn't entirely sure what to make of it for some sort. I mean, I loved it, but I was like, this whole thing with the car and the aliens and the whole with Repo Man. I mean, it was just like this is like a whole new genre almost. <laughs> a film. Like, I didn't know what to quite make of it really. You can't compare it to anything else. Yeah, which to me kind of. I mean, I've tried to describe like compare Alex Cox to Tarantino, in that they're both incredible film geeks. You know, I'm mean, clearly. Famous their religion. They both love spaghetti westerns. Deeply love them. Uh, but at the same time, of course, there, is, there are the similarities. I mean, Alex Cox, I don't think he's said he, anything really bad about Tarantino, but he, if you read his, I read some book of his, and he like talks about you know, using music from other films, and your film is bad, and it's lazy, and uh, you know, so I, I don't think he's somebody who is a fan of Tarantino. You know, definitely not. Uh, but there are definitely like that, that, you know, but he was like kind of Tarantino before Tarantino still, you know, like he was this brand new voice in the eighties, you know, like when people saw Repo Man, they obviously were like, wow, this is so refreshing to see just completely new voice, you know, uh, unhinged, you know, his career kind of went in reverse in a way. Because, yeah. like, later on, he would be making a movie with a budget for, like, what, $180,000 late okay. in his career. Oh, yeah. Which oh, yeah. is I mean, interesting. He, yeah, I mean, as of uh, recently, he's been just making, like, these micro, micro-feature films. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, like, he made Repo Chick, which I looked at the trailer of, and it's basically just actors standing in front of green screens. And it's just like, I don't know. It, it got Man. horrible reviews yeah i almost don't want to i don't even want to expose myself to it because i'm afraid of ruining you know just the 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 legacy of repo man yeah although i let that stand on its own 
Yes. Uh, I think he I think Universal made some kind of Repo Man film called Repo Men with Jude Law. Yeah, I don't I don't think it's at all related no. to this universe. I don't think so. Yeah. Yeah, Alex Cox has talked about that in some video interview actually. He he said that the Universal basically like, you know, wanted to sort of rip off I think Repo Man or something or you know, try to get people to see the film, you know, like um, but that's, I think, is more of a science fiction thriller. Uh, definitely not. Like, I, I don't right. think we're ever going to see a remake of Repo Man. It's just never going to happen. I sure hope the hell not. That'd be too... Ugh. No, yeah. don't. <laughs> and I know Dear history- Hollywood, don't remake this one, please. <laughs> no. no, and uh, I, I think he's talked about trying to make some Repo Man sequel. I think he said, I don't know, but... As far as his later career goes, I mean, he's currently he has a film in the can, I think, right now. Uh, I don't know if it's finished or not, but uh, he's he it started as a Kickstarter thing. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah that's I, that's all the rage these yeah, days. Yeah, which which I contributed to because I of like course. Alex Cox. So it's called Tombstone Rashomon. Have you read about this? Oh no, no, that's uh, interesting. Yeah, it, it's uh, hmm. let me look. since he uh, it's supposed to be a. Um, you know, of course, uh, the, the story of, you know, White Earp. There oh, yeah. Quite, quite a few films about him. Uh, and this is going to be about White Earp. It's going to be about the uh, the OK Corral uh, shootout. But it's okay. Gonna told, but it's going to be told in that in the style of the uh, Kurosawa film, Rashomon. So we're going to hmm. see different perspectives, which, you know, it, can't be, it could be interesting. You know, see what he's in the court being a Western. I, mm. You know, the thing I, I kind of really dig is the monologue that Miller has. He's kind of a quirky philosopher. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, he stresses, like, this idea of a cosmic unconsciousness, and it brings up the lattice of coincidence that hangs over the world with that plate of shrimp (laughs) idea. That whole thing is really, really interesting to me. Um, Which, you know, it could simply be Alex... Cox spouting his own ideas of the universe through a character, which he does rather frequently in something like Walker. But, you know, I I think doing things like that sort of um, endear me a lot, where it's, it's the kind of stuff that Richard Linkletter does very, very well, where a character will just be having a conversation that you have with your friends or when you're thinking deep thoughts, or you're yeah. high, you know, with your yeah. with all your friends, and, just and, he, and out. Uh, and he's of course a fan of Alex Cox. I know that he's a fan of. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I can tell. And and th- and three businessmen felt like a Richard Linkletter before mm. Sunrise kind of movie, only with two dudes. But the way you, <laughs> what you said about that scene where he's talking about the time machines and saucers, <laughs> I think you're referring to, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, you said it was like, oh, it was like a conversation you would have in it's just this conversation scene, you know, two characters. And to me, Repo Man is, uh, and I think, I think it might have been Tarantino who actually quite said this. Like, he, he, Tarantino has, I think, has talked about like movies you, you, you call like hangout movies. Hangout movies, that's right. Yeah. And this is one of those, I think. This is a I perfect, agree. yeah. There's like, maybe not, I don't know, I could be wrong with this, but there might be not be a straight, like, Free act structures of the film, you know, like you know, like typical, but it's just it's just a great hangout film. Like, oh yeah, like just you just want to watch the film just to hang out with these characters. Really. Yeah, I always look forward to 
seeing Bud and Otto together hanging out. <laughs> That's I I love everything about this movie, but their chemistry, their relationship together, just like you know, two guys on a diet of beer and cocaine, taking joy rides, going after rival repo men, um, and and just doing what they do, kind of haphazardly at times, is just constantly entertaining. I mean, as much as like uh, Alex Cox sort of embraces the social commentary element and embracing punk subculture and everything, it really is just a good old-fashioned dark comedy of sorts. I know a life of crime led me to this sorry fate. I I blame society. Society made me what I am. That's bullshit. You're a white suburban punk, just like me. It feels like a mashup of a lot of different things and a lot of different elements. But somehow it feels like it's completely original at the same yeah, time. This is one of those uh it's one of those cult classics of the eighties. For know? a it's, reason. Yeah. It's up it's up there with, you know, um Big Trap and Little China or I thought of They Live too oh, yeah. a little bit. Oh yeah. Oh yeah, there's a bit of yeah, there's a kind of a they live feel to it. Uh and also that movie what's it called with uh Peter Weller? Uh it's called Buckaro Bonsai. Oh yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> Just this completely crazy like '80s films where like whoa, what is going on here? You know, <laughs> yeah. But uh, but Repo Man managed to like some ways maybe take itself even more like become almost like a real film compared to those. Like you know what I mean? Like it almost like has like this something to say and uh, all these unlike those other films. You know, well not yeah. live, but uh, you know you know what I mean? Like it's not just simply goofy fun. It's also like you know wants to be about you know this something yeah it has the floating green glowing car at the very end combined with something grounded like the scene where he's talking with his parents i mean we were all teenagers who had these moments of complete disconnect from whatever our parents were into Um, oh yeah for with 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 me and my dad it was i would come home from school or, or for from my crappy job at a fast food restaurant to see my dad watching NASCAR racing. <laughs> and I was just like, I, I can't get into that at all. And, you know, he'd just be kind of like zoned out, relaxing on the couch, watching this stuff. And I'd just be like, uh, I'm going to go upstairs and watch movies. Bye. <laughs> and my parents are separated. Um, my, my father definitely tried to get me into like hockey and I just could not get into that. And- sure. My mother, you know, she didn't exactly like my, my like my movie choices. She actually thought I would become a serial killer because I watched horror films. <laughs> um, I think all moms have that fear. My yeah. mom was definitely concerned when I was watching like and Nightmare she, on Elm Street and, she, and Evil Dead. Yeah, and she would often be like address like how talk about how I dress and how I look and say why can't you be normal? Basically, like this is what how people like. Like I don't care, you know. Like I don't care how people. <laughs> yeah. Somebody. So, yeah, I know what you mean. I know what you mean. You know, That's yeah. kind of why I, I sort of mentioned the the Holden Caulfield for the '80s kind of um, feel I get to Otto's character, where it's just like you know, damn the man, I'm going to do whatever I want, and um, even at the very end, <laughs> what about our relationship? Fuck that! <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's so great. It's, yeah, everything about this movie just rules. Like, 
I, I watch it every time and I love it all the more. It's 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 creeping up on my list of favorite movies of all time. Like the more I watch it, the more I consider it like this is my kind of movie through and through. Yeah. Yeah, and I I just wonder like like would you call it a comedy or what exactly would you how would you like I think we talked we, I we guess talk, satire. I mean like satire. that's the, that's the first thing I think of and maybe you know doing a little research or I, I feel like that's kind of what people lean towards um you know it's it's a punk rock satire of some kinds you know it's it's its own thing yeah and many of Alice Cox films have that satire feel to it with maybe the exception of Highway Patrolman which it might be his most serious film yeah I would I would say that and I also think I mean, but there's there's a moment where Pedro hurls a bottle of tequila at George Bush on TV, if I recall. Oh yeah, there was oh yeah, there was a scene like that. He froze <laughs> at some politician who was talking about Mexico. Yeah, yeah, I think it was George Bush. So, which is very relevant. To he had to sneak it in there somehow. Yeah, Alex Cox, he's very interested in Mexico and you know Central America. Yeah, he lived there for a while, I think. Oh yeah, oh he did. Yeah, that might explain. It. I mean, he's. So fascinated by those countries, uh, so to the point where, of course, he wants to make movies about them and really address the political issues there. Yeah, I, I know uh, he's a film teacher, but he, he clearly he reads a lot and he's interested in sociology and politics. Yeah, and I was there's this uh, thirty minute uh, video on YouTube. It's him and the writer Rudy. Oh, what's his name? But uh, he wrote Rolitzer. Yeah, who wrote Walker? Yeah, they're do, they're talking about Walker. And at some point, uh, Alex Cox is like, wants to recommend this 9-11 documentary <laughs> to everybody, uh, which is basically about, I think, like, uh, the fact that 9-11 was uh, an inside job I think, or something. Yeah, I've heard that. I've heard that, too. Mm. I remember uh, a friend of mine showing me something, and I was skeptical about it. Yeah. But at but, the but same I, time, we don't want to get into conspiracy theories here. No. <laughs> but, but, yeah, that's Alex Cox. <laughs> <laughs> the <Sometimes>. end. Drink Pepsi. I am an antichrist. I am an anarchist. Probably his most critically acclaimed of his filmography, and that's Sid and Nancy, which I also saw. I'm pr- I'm pretty sure I rented this too around the same time as Repo Man, without mm. realizing they were the same director at all. But you know, clearly he loves punk rock. Yeah, I uh, think I I think I heard about this film from somebody when I was working at a dog daycare here in Sweden. Uh, one of the girls who's really this kind of like really into heavy metal and stuff, you know, really gothic girl, and she was just like. Oh, I love this movie, Sid and Nancy, and so I decided to buy the film for her. And, and then and she, like, then she uh, adopted two puppies and named <laughs> them Sid and Nancy. <laughs> no, no, no. Uh, but uh, when I looked at the DVD, I was like, "Oh, directed by Alex Cox, the Repo Man guy." <laughs> so, yeah, and I watched it, and uh, yeah, this is this is actually you know of all his films, he he regards it as his least favorite. Actually, it's his most conventional, quote unquote. 
you know? Yeah. I mean, it's but, but also he doesn't like it because he doesn't think it's true. Like he doesn't think it's truthful enough to the actual Sid and Nancy and I think Six Pistols. I think that's where he's like... I wonder I, if he genuinely feels that way or if it's just a little bit of backlash from the punk scene and people who knew the real Sid and Nancy. Like, I think well, they I, even said he kind of downplays things. I know that when he was... Actually, at the same time he was doing Repo Man, he had already met, uh, again, the writer Walker, and they were planning to do Walker, but instead he, he had to do Sid and Nancy first or something. So he was... Uh, I guess it was like kind of a work for hire in some ways. I guess yeah. Was, and then he was like, okay, punk, uh, Sid and Nancy, I can maybe make a... I can deal with this, maybe. Yeah, I don't uh, think it's a passion project, but he certainly brings his own um, sense of style to it and his love of the scene, clearly. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And there's that maniacal energy to the film, which you will see in this later. Yeah. Hell. It's very, it's very manic. And it oh, has yeah. this, like... Um, Wait, which is funny because when you watch uh, Alex Cox in interviews or listen to his audio commentaries, he's very gentle, very soft-spoken. You don't really think he's <laughs> somebody who's into you know punk rock or somebody who would make these kinds of films. Yeah, yeah he seems pretty chill. He seems pretty yeah. laid back, and I, I kind of I kind of appreciate that more like, than the arms flailing, speaking really fast <laughs> um, quality of Tarantino. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, but I think it's a compelling love story. But one it's thing a- I take away from it, like Train Spotting or Requiem for a Dream, it's a cautionary tale. I, it, it, nobody should ever go near heroin. <laughs> like, oh, it's all fun and games and feeling numb until you accidentally stab your girlfriend. You know, and like yeah. that that sentiment is definitely been done in other films. There's been many films about drug abuse. Mm. But I think this one manages to combine, you know, the love of punk music, a love story, and a cautionary tale about drug abuse all together beautifully. That it's it's kind of a special film, especially for the performances. Yeah, it is. The, it's a film I would definitely recommend for people. Like, I mean, especially if you're a Gary Oldman fan. Oh, <laughs> Gary good Oldman, God. Is, he is just off his rockers in this film. And this is like one of his, I think, very first roles. Uh, he, I think he might have been his first film. I'm not sure. I could be wrong about that. Uh, but it was definitely like his, must have been his first like major starring uh, role. Uh, and he's just, I mean, he is that... Sid Vicious. I, I don't really, I'm not a fan of v- Sid Vicious or whatever, but seeing him in this film, I go, that is a punk. <laughs> yeah. No, he, on heroin. It, it, it just seems like he went all out in almost a method kind of way. I don't know. I, obviously, he's not really shooting heroin, but. Um, yeah, I, I think probably at that, I mean, Gary Oldman, he is a uh, very, very capable actor. I think at that point, he was definitely probably very method. And probably Chloe, Chloe Webb as well. You know, they're probably living, you know, those roles. They probably probably weren't even taking off those clothes, you know. That we were to, you know. Yeah, I read that too, that they never change their clothes. So there's just this constant smell of puke and B.O. And, or whatever. <laughs> yeah, I, that's the way to make a film, isn't it? I mean, I hear – I read – when I read about, like, The Deer Hunter and how – 
Robert Nero like really wanted to live in that small town, and like uh, like one of the actors in that film, the Deer Hunter, like it's not even an actor. He's just one of the. He just Robert Nero met this guy in the pub. Was like, hey, you want to be in the film in our movie? <laughs> I think I think this has its place. I think that that sort of approach, like the the Sean Penn, the Gary Oldman, the Val Kilmer approach, has its place. In mm-hmm. terms of getting amazing performances, but yeah, then well, you, you go well, to extremes. Well, like of course, Dustin as long as, Hoffman. It, as long as it doesn't like you know hurt anybody, right? You know, mentally, but physically. that's what I'm saying. It's like Dustin Hoffman. He wanted for Marathon Man of all movies. He wanted to know what it was like to um, have dental work done without any anesthetic, without any Novocaine. So he went to a dentist to just say, like, "Can you work on my teeth?" Even though there was nothing wrong with it. <laughs> I, well, that is very strange. I that that is odd. <laughs> yeah, and then of course Lawrence Olivier, his response to that to to Dustin Hoffman was, um, uh, "There's this thing called acting, Dustin. You should give it a try." <laughs> well, yeah, I heard about that, but isn't that kind of like a isn't that kind of like a myth or something? I, I don't know it, if it. I I thought that was. I read that somewhere, but maybe it is a myth. Uh, Orson Welles debunk it. Best. Orson Welles said it best when it comes to acting. It's when. Oliver Reed met Orson Welles, and uh, they made a film together, actually. And Oliver Reed was like, well, how do you do it? What do you do when – how do you act? And Oliver Reed's, uh, uh, Orson Welles' response was, you do nothing. You do nothing, my dear boy. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, you, first you're like, wait, what? But then you're like, oh, yeah, you know, like there really isn't that much – like don't think about it. Just do it. You know, just do it. Don't think about how you should do it. Just act. Just know your lines. And interact with the other actor and just do it. That's it, really. I think that's what he was saying. I think the thing I like a lot about Sid and Nancy is that it doesn't spend a whole lot of time placing its characters in like this cultural context where it establishes this is this time period. Like mm. stuff like Sea Biscuit, Cinderella Man, or even Ray. They're just you know, like, this is the time, and let's flash back to this, and let's do this, and it sort of really um, hits the nail over the head. It, 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 like, plays down to the audience. And here, I don't think... I, it's just like, let's throw you into this world right away. Yeah. Um, there's a beautiful sequence where it's that, man, that disastrous Silver Jubilee celebration where <laughs> Sid and Nancy walk through the police mayhem like ghosts that that he's Alex Cox is really good at these long tracking shots through chaos like there's a moment oh, yeah. in Walker where Ed Harris is just walking highway oh, yeah. patrolman mm. those shots are what really stand out to me is that it's it's not flashy and necessarily it's just I'm letting the camera follow this character in this really intense moment and you feel it you feel you, you feel like you're there with them in this yeah, chaos. Yeah, again, like uh, again, unlike Tarantino, he's not a flashy filmmaker at all. In many ways, I think he probably wants to make his films as you know as less flashy as possible. Uh, there is quite a bit of. I mean, occasionally he will do something like he will use slow motion. There's a beautiful slow motion shot in this film where he walks with the <laughs> the glass door. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's just. Just an amazing little moment. Uh, he's, of course, a fan of Sam Peckinpah. Alex Clearly. Patrick, which is very evident in the, his later films, uh, like Walker. Uh, yeah, he's, uh, he's a very... I mean, he's one of those directors... I think the thing about Alex Cox, and 
somebody once said about Tarantino that he's somebody who makes art pranks. His movies are like art pranks. You know what I mean by that? Yeah, I could see that. Yeah, like, for example, like The Hateful Eight is like this, it's going to be shot in 70 millimeters, it's going to be this big epic western, and it's all shot in a little cabin. <laughs> you know, like it's just... Well, I think he, I don't know if he's just trying to fuck with people or subverting their expectations like that. But he's a fan, he's a fan of Godard. I know he's a fan of Godard. Sure. And somebody like Alex Cox is probably a similar thing. I think he's, another thing also is about these two guys, like Cox and Tarantino, it's like they're so, they so much knowledge about film. They know every single way to make a film. That They're probably just kind of like, all right, just, I'm going to do it my own way, you know? Crazy but it's also, way. I think some of it's embedded into their subconscious to where, I don't know if they're explicitly saying I'm going to rip this thing off or I'm going to pay homage to this thing. I, I mean, I may, maybe Tarantino does that, but I think a lot of directors sort of, they love movies. They watch them mm. over and over and over again. I think they're just inevitably going to mirror the style of films that they love. Sure. And Alex Cox, he's also a fan of, uh, he, he speaks a lot about Louis Bunnell. Yeah, that's and, a director I need to explore more of for sure because yeah, a lot of people. Yeah, me too. I need to explore his work. Yeah, he's and, he's kind of a blind spot for me, and I I've, I've been meaning to finally see like the discreet Jarma, the bourgeois, and all those films. There's Belle de, Belle de Jour. And, yeah, yeah, I actually I've seen Belle de Jour, and that's that's a really great film. I got but, like the Experimenting Angel on DVD. That's that's actually the name of I think Alex Cox Production Company. Yeah, 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 yeah. Totally. Yeah. So it's funny, I mentioned the cinematographer of uh, Repo Man, but this time... Roger Deakins. Yeah, right? <laughs> wow. That guy... He's, he's gone places. Uh-huh, I'll say. <laughs> With the Coen brothers, nonetheless. Yeah, you know, Alice Cox's first, I would say, four films, they're pretty much shot like traditional films but uh, and they're all i think exceptionally well-made films but when you get to his later films in the 90s he starts to get into this like let's i'm gonna do everything in one take thing yeah uh, which, I, which i had mixed feelings on um let me get there but uh sid and nancy is a it's just to my last words on it. it it is a brutal but beautiful love story <laughs> so i'd say it's tragic tragic yeah, you know, it's it's not necessarily a film that you can sort of deconstruct in the way we can for something like Repo Man or or Walker, where it really is a straightforward self destruct portrayal of self destructive love. Um, and yeah. you know, and here the when when he sh- sort of illustrates their complete detachment from reality when they light the floor of the Chelsea Hotel on fire. Yeah, and also Chloe Webb, she kind of disappeared. Yeah, I was, I really hadn't seen her in anything else. I don't think when Not I looked her I up, when I looked her up, she, I, I saw that oh, she's in Ghostbusters too. <laughs> oh, okay. She, at the beginning, she's somebody who talks about I think being like taken by aliens or something, but. <laughs> Yeah, but she is uh, not... Oh, yeah, that's right. She was in uh, The Belly of an Architect, the uh, Peter Greenaway film. Hmm. Hmm. Uh, But she's not your traditional, like, uh, you know, striking, beautiful, uh, you know, love interest. Like, I see so many comments from people saying, like, oh, she's so ugly and uh. But that's what I like about her. This is, you know, like, reality to her. She's not... Glamorous. She's not your traditional starlet. Yeah. You know, and that's that's something that, obviously, I think they, they intentionally 
casted mm. her for, and I know originally Courtney Love was going to play the role, mm-hmm. or at least she auditioned <laughs> for it. And you know who else was up for the role of uh, uh, Sid Vicious? Mm, when you tell me, I'll know or I'll remember. Daniel Day-Lewis. That's right, yes. <laughs> Which that, would totally be awesome. That would have been awesome. I've seen him in some 80s film. I can't remember what it's called. Laundry or something, I think. But uh, My Beautiful Laundrette? That's it. Get us it. That's the one. Yeah. So yeah, I can, I can definitely see him in that role. That would have been Oh, cool. of course. Talk about method. That's, that's, it, that's a guy who just, again, goes for broke. I don't think he played this kind of role back then, did he? I, I don't think, think played, so, no. But it no. would have been like him playing like the role in uh, Gangs of New York, or yeah. uh, <laughs> it would have been I, the same kind of intense. I like showy Daniel Day-Lewis roles. I, m- <laughs> m- when it comes to acting, I do like the less is more naturalistic approach, but when it comes to Daniel Day-Lewis, yeah, chew that scenery. I don't care. I'm, I'm all for it. He's very methody too, isn't he? Like yeah. he's totally into it. Yeah. I drink your milkshake. But yeah. let's get let's get to the next um, couple of talk, films here. I can talk. A, you didn't, of course, you didn't finish Straight to Hell. You saw like twenty minutes of it. Yeah, I, I sense it was like a like a, kind of a Django spaghetti homage with the setup of strangers crashing into a small town but the uh, the tone was very acerbic when you have like courtney love screaming at the top of her lungs i just i can't deal with it <laughs> yeah it, it's uh that film it's first time i saw it i didn't quite like it i was like what is this this is so overbearing it just goes on and on and on to no real like good end uh and it, it was supposed to be the spoof of spaghetti westerns. That's what it was supposed to be. Uh, and there's certainly, I mean, of all, compared to his other films, it is very, I mean, it's so crazy. It's so over the top, perhaps more so than his other films. I mean, like, it's not serious at all. <laughs> uh, and I, I, all I can say about this film is it, it has some really funny moments to it. It's got some great moments to it. Sure, and I bet. And if you want to see Jim Jarmusch as a gangster or something, he's in the film. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah, he's in, he's in the, the shootout at the end. He's got this white suit on and everything. So, yeah, Jim Jarmusch. <laughs> you know, I've often said this on the show, too. It's, a director always wants to make a Hitchcock kind of film. But I think this is very true, especially with some recent directors. I think directors want to make their own Western. You know? I mean, Jim Jarmusch, clearly, with Dead yeah. Man. Yeah, John Carpenter definitely, but never talked to. <laughs> yeah, that's that's all he that's all he wanted to make. He all yeah. he always wanted to remake Rio Bravo in different settings. But yeah, no, it 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 definitely felt like well, this is a straight on sort of gangster western from from Alex Cox, and I don't know, I might finish at some point, but it was just yeah. uh, I don't know, I, the tone a- was really. Yeah, I got a he 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 released a director's cut or something a couple of years ago. It was called Straight to Hell Returns, and he added like I haven't watched it. He added like digital blood or something to it, and he re- <laughs> and he cut it down. I, it sounds weird, but I, I need to check it out. Um, but it was funny. I tried. I, w- I was going to watch the commentary track, but I didn't get to finish it. I watched a little bit of it, and it was kind of funny because the writer was on there, and uh, they get to the scene where he and he just kind of goes, "Well, that scene was a waste of time, wasn't it?" Alex is <laughs> very open about it. Like, huh, what was that about? What did he shoot the bed for? <laughs> like, oh, wow. 
Yeah, and but Xbox like, oh no no no, they they start to explain like the reason for this. That's similar to the to the con- or the commentary for the limey. Yeah, but uh, I, like I said, there is something about Straight to Hell. It's got that weird, crazy energy to it. It's got some funny lines. There's some moments there I think I just kind of funny, like when Courtney Love is walking around uh, the little the this western town, and this little figure comes out and goes, psst, psst, hey, because. <laughs> Wow, what do you want? And he kind of goes and starts talking to her. And then, like, she proceeds to walk away. And then he goes, psst, psst, come here. And she goes, no, get away from me. Get away from me. And this guy Back. starts chasing her. He goes, no. Get away from me! Get away from me! Yeah, that's so sort of British sensibility, you know? like yeah. the, Almost like the Monty Python sense oh, of yeah, humor. I was, I was just going to say that, Monty Python. <laughs> Yeah, this this was like written in three days, shot in three weeks. I think he just sort of did it because he wasn't able to do. He, I think he was he wanted to follow. I don't know if it was Joe Strummer or I can't remember what band it was. I don't think it was the Clash, but he wanted to basically do like a rock rockumentary, uh, huh. and, th- and then he couldn't get funding for it. So his producer was just like, "Why don't we just do a, a, a you know like a little." throwaway kind of western um, in the same environment because you know he was really fascinated with this uh, landscape in in Mexico and stuff hmm yeah it is uh, and I mean yeah Courtney Love I mean she, damn she gets on your nerves doesn't she I mean she is so yeah. so I mean and but then also she's interesting because she's so like uh, I mean I haven't I'm not somebody who keeps up on like what Courtney Cox is, looks like but she's like kind of chubby in the movie, she's very like badly dressed and just there's something about her in this film. It's, I, I think that they, the funny thing is they try to interview her for the DVD, but she wouldn't do it. She wouldn't come back and talk about it. And Alex Cox actually got an actress then to pretend to be Courtney Love to do, <laughs> to be, in, which was not supposed to be like a like a secret. Like he was very expressive. Oh yeah, I got somebody to play Courtney Cox for an interview. So. <laughs> You know, you're combining Courtney Love with uh, oh, Alex Cox. Oh, sorry. Oh. No, that's that's actually say, kind of funny. Did I say Courtney Cox? Yeah. <laughs> oh, that Big would difference. Be something. That would be something, right? Courtney Cox and... <laughs> yeah, I could, I could see Courtney Love and Scream, because she screams so much. No, get away from me, get away. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. That's uh, like I like her as a front woman for a rock band, because she just has that attitude for it. Sure. What movies has she done? She was in... People vs. Larry Flint is where she got... Um, a lot of acclaim, maybe even a, a Golden Globe nomination, but she was just playing herself. Right. Really. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's an interesting transition from Straight to Hell to Walker because he used the same crew and managed to get <laughs> some good funding from a capitalist studio, essentially, which is really... Because f- this is a movie that's condemning capitalism, essentially. Oh, well, yeah. <laughs> you know? So it's, it's just kind of ironic. It's kind of condemning the U.S., isn't it? Yes. <laughs> uh I, yeah, I don't know how this movie got made. I it's don't either. Those, it's one of those, wait, how did it get... It's like Ken Russell's The Devil. It's like, wait, how did this movie get made? 
<laughs> yeah, and what if Pasolini and Monty Hellman and Sam Peckinpah made a film about mm. how much they hated the sort of Iron Contra involvement at the time and sort of goes back to find a parallel between what Reagan was doing at the time and what um, William Walker was doing in 1855. So it's really very critical of American foreign policy and just how we tend to intervene and stick our noses in where they don't belong. You know, this goes further back, I'm sure, but, you know, Vietnam being the prime example. Oh, yeah, we get it. We get a little thing at the end in the end credits, of course, where we see like footage from like Vietnam. They talk about Vietnam, the Reagan is on TV and talking about Vietnam and soldiers, you know. And yeah, we'll, we'll get to right. kind of I, the ending s- sort of okay. surprise in a bit. I, I must say, I didn't really know anything about Nicaragua before I saw this film. Like, this was something I'm not really, I, I didn't know who the hell William Walker was. But this film just felt to me, it felt so relevant still to this day. Like, yeah, in USA, inv- US invading another country and promising, we're going to do this, but, not, but then they just take it over, you know. Yeah. Just goes to war. It's just, wow. <laughs> so relevant. Still, it's probably going to continue to be relevant through years to come. You know, I, oh, I would completely agree because, um, I mean, even at one point, a character says, you know, like something along the lines of Republican, Democrat, I can't tell the difference. Yeah. <laughs> and that is really what's happening in our country right now with uh, the, uh, with Trump and Clinton. Like people are just, <laughs> they don't know what to think and say it at this point. It's, it's, it's shocking to even realize that Trump has gotten as far as he has. It yeah, really I, is. Yeah, it's kind of scary. And sad. I, yeah, I just right. can't, I can't get over this. But anyway, back to the movie. <laughs> this, tonally, this movie is all over the place, but that is kind of its charm. <laughs> <laughs> it's, I, I, I've said this a lot too, where I think a lot of movies, when they throw all these different things into a blender, it comes across to me as like, what Southland Tales was for Richard Kelly, where it's just like, I got this idea, this social commentary, this political commentary. Um, you know, he was very critical of something like the Patriot Act in that movie. But he mm-hmm. also wanted to have his cake and eat it, too, and just sort of be playful, um, embed his story into um, a science fiction Philip K. Dick universe. So, like, here, it's, it's, I would say, like, it, at least in terms of setting, it's consistent. But there is a weird, surreal playfulness through very serious subject matter. Like, there's yeah. a com- comedic reverence, almost, with, with the way Ed Harris portrays Walker. <laughs> I'm a This whole operation is a fucking disgrace, your worship. You are stripped of your rank. You can either stay here as a private or you can leave. A private this, Willie. Holy shit! Hey, hey, hey! Yeah, all the anachronisms. Yeah. Which is just, first time you see it, you're like, wait a second, what's happening? It's a car? 
<laughs> yeah, what, what? Why are there Coke bottles all of a sudden? Yeah, and they're reading like what is it called? The 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 magazine, the news, something. I can't remember what it was called. Oh right, but yeah. The re- yeah, and like Walker's like, have you seen this? <laughs> and a, and like the helicopter at the end. <laughs> uh, yeah, I wonder like with this film if he had. I'm not. Sure, did he have final cut on this film? I wonder if the whole like voiceover narration and some of the weird like sudden like oh and this happens and then this happened. I wonder if maybe there was some stuff that was cut out of the film or something. It feels. I would. I don't want to say incomplete or like poorly edited or rushed job or anything like that. But a story like this, I, I wouldn't necessarily think it should be condensed to 90 minutes. I mean, yeah, I think I, the pacing is a little off here and there through this movie. Mm-hmm. But there's just some, again, that go-for-broke nature really sits well with me when you just sort of throw caution to the wind, get very angry about the way... Americans intervene with this sort of cowboy mentality and sense of entitlement. Clearly, Cox is pissed off about right. our about American politics in general. In the same way that maybe Kubrick did with Doctor Strangelove, you know, it's it's a critique, it's a satire. Um, I mean, obviously, Doctor Strangelove is a much funnier film with a more consistent tone. But I think people that didn't click with Walker initially. I think they took it too seriously. Well, yeah, they they thought Alex Cox was on, uh, I think, uh, Walker's side. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Because, I mean, he is the protagonist, but he's the bad guy, definitely. Exactly. He's he's demented in the film. (laughs) I mean, at the beginning of the film, he goes, you know, I'm against slavery. And then at some point in the the film, he goes, let's introduce introduce slavery into (laughs) the Because he's so been driven off the edge by that point, you know, he so believes that he's destined to for greatness, you know. But I, I can see people being put off by, like he at times he's like a cartoon character, and at other times he's, you know, openly weeping over the death of his, um, of his fiance. I, I, yeah, I, I think Ed Harris is amazing in this film. I, 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 yeah, it's an he's, incredible performance. He's with God now, my son. Don't talk to me about God! What do you know about God? Get out! I can't. I don't! Oh, you bitch! It's very much a classic Ed Harris performance in that he is so intense... It looks like he's going to attack the cameraman at any point. <laughs> you know, the actual guy who's <laughs> filming, you know? Yeah. Like, he, like you don't want to disturb this guy because he is into it. Uh, I think this might have been Ed Harris' like first major... I know he was, he was in Night Riders before that. I think he it? was in The Right Stuff, too. Right. And he was in Under Fire. That's right. He did some movies that... But this was like his first major, I think, starring role. So... And he just goes for it. I mean, he is so... Apparently, and I, I think I heard that he was really into the part. Like he was just always into that mindset as the character. <laughs> I can tell. I, yeah. I, he, he's really good in this. I mean, the only thing is, it's just it's hard to get a good read on. Does Walker really believe his own BS? It, it's like he's speechifying mm. about democracy at one point, and then. You know, he's performing surgery and eating someone's heart and then smiling 
Oh, yeah, that's right. It does. That. I was wondering what that was. I was like, wait, did he just eat some kind of part of his body? What was that? <laughs> I mean, again, I think that's 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 um, Alex Cox's sense of humor being very Monty Python esque. Mm. You know, just sort of throwing something like that in. But I think what turned people off is that this is a serious issue, you know, going on, especially at the time with 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 Reagan's infiltration. And just the idea of like, well, let's go in and help, but essentially we want to take over. Mm. And here, like, Cox is sort of taking the piss and just viewing it through, like, this lens of ridiculousness. Like, just look at how ridiculous those Americans are thinking they can do this. And I think I think that's a good approach, honestly. Like, you don't have to take everything so seriously you don't have to treat this like dances with wolves or you know just uh, like just a, a serious tone yeah like someone like eastwood like clint eastwood would do yeah i mean when i was going through alice cox biography and i came to this film i was like uh okay what is this supposed to be some sort of bio- biopic or you know and it i watched like it, it. Yeah. and it's like well no what is this? <laughs> this is something completely different this is not your typical i mean it been described as a hallucinatory biopic, as a sur- surrealistic take on William Walker, and it is definitely. I mean, it breaks so many cinematic conventions. Uh, yeah, it's, it's it's remarkably subversive. Yeah, and the way he wants to, you know, parallel what's happening with with Anna, you know, Christmas, you know, uh, with the helicopter at the end showing up, which is so. I mean. I wonder what people thought of that when they saw it in the film. That actually made me want to applaud in the same <laughs> way that the frogs falling out of the sky in Magnolia makes me want to applaud. Because that's a ballsy choice to just suddenly, okay, let's throw <laughs> let's throw in a helicopter storming in. Almost like storming in on the production of the movie. Yeah, I was wondering what that... Like, you almost think that, well, wait, whoa, it's the producers coming to... <laughs> it's, again, it's almost like the ending of Holy Grail. You know, where it's just... Uh, it is oh, very... You know, when you see, yeah, it is very Monty Python, isn't it? By exploiting the workers, by hanging on to outdated imperialist dogma, which perpetuates the economic and social differences in our society. If there's ever going to be any progress... Dennis, there's got- some lovely filth down here! I'm Arthur, King of the Britain. Whose castle is that? King of the who? The Britons. Who the Britons? I, I I dig that shit, man. I just think it's I think it's hilarious. I think you know the fact that characters are drinking Coca Cola, reading Newsweek, and I don't know, man. That's and like the sort of lively salsa music <laughs> while these grisly blood squibs are exploding, you know. And they they I don't they literally come across. Sam Peckinpah's grave or something at one point. <laughs> oh, I didn't see that. But there are, there are there are shots that are they, it's not like somebody falling off a balcony in slow motion and that's very Sam Peckinpah. Absolutely. Many and Sam maybe Peckinpah. and maybe it is just because I recently did a Peckinpah episode and we talked about Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid and mm. Bring Me the Head of Alfredo Garcia that I was sort of in the mindset of this could be kind of a weird allegory slash homage and that's totally fine yeah and it's just, it's uh, written by Rudy Wurlitzer who wrote Pat Garrett and Build a Kid yeah so and I just uh, found that out after uh, watching and I was just like oh that totally makes sense yeah and Alex Cox said that he's like the only real like 
writer who's like dealt with the politics of the Western yeah. in America anyway. So the big yeah. the big criticism for me is that Peter Boyle plays it way too big and <laughs> there's no need to have a fart joke. You fucked up, Walker. Next time pick on a country your own size. Are you entitled to wear that uniform? I'm entitled to do anything I want. You know, people probably fart in real life. They probably do like that. They just <laughs> Yeah, all you have to do is did. see Swiss Army Man to know mm-hmm. um it's to, to show have a nice parable about parable about farts. Yeah, it's 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 to show like, you know, I can do whatever I want. <laughs> That's true. I know he's I'm sure a character like Vanderbilt owning a giant railroad company. He probably was a total dick and played things big in real life. I don't doubt that. I'm just kind of like that, like when he takes the flowers and starts, <laughs> and he just starts like hitting people with them. I don't know. I just found it. I mean, there are many silly th- things going on in this movie, but that felt like almost Zucker Brothers silly all of a sudden. But so the ending of this, when the helicopter shows up and sort of gives us like a, a modern feel um, all of a sudden, and then. Yeah. Coming you know, to pick up the Americans, you know, not yeah. any. <laughs> <laughs> Very, <laughs> yeah. And then, in the way that the movie ends, kind of reminds me a little bit of the of the uh, the sense of humor, the preachiness of what Lars von Trier does at the end of Dogville. Uh, probably the probably the best movie that criticizes America in general mm. would be Dogville, in my opinion. But this this comes pretty close. But this in, is actually in maybe being a scathing the- satire. The fact also this was released by a major studio in Hollywood, exactly. that makes this even, I think, <laughs> I mean, uh, and how this got released, I, don't, I know they tried to bury it, you know, like, Alex Cox tried to get the film out in, like, film festivals, but they just buried it. Like, they made some deal with some film festival, like, no, 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 we don't, don't take Walker, take this other film instead. You know, they really tried to bury it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's, it really showcases... Again, American interventionism at its most, like totalitarian, and it, but it also makes fun of it. Just like the fact that we even do this kind of stuff is ridiculous in the eyes of Alex Cox. So I think this tone is appropriate for the material. Not everybody's going to click with it because we don't. You know, they may not just find it funny. Mm. It is kind of that again going to Tarantino. There is that. Like kind of like Inglorious Bastards, you know. Yeah. Let's just kind of make fun of how you know. Let's just go. Let's make fun there. of Hitler. Yeah. It's just let's, let's just let's just go crazy, you know, with it because it's so absurd looking back on it. Which I'm totally fine with. I I, I like to laugh at everything. <laughs> you know, even even when my dad was diagnosed with cancer, we mm. we made jokes because that's how people deal with it sometimes when you're dealing with heavy shit. So. It helps. I mean, it, yeah. it, humor is every bit as therapeutic as composing music or watching films or reading a great book or going to actual therapy. Yeah, so I think it's yeah. appropriate. Yeah, aren't co- you know comedians? They are kind of like really the darkest people you can talk to, aren't they? Like they they're the ones who really know how they yeah. feel. They probably are the probably most depressed people, but they way to deal with that is through comedy. You know. Yeah, someone like Robin Williams really had a dark side that he sort of dealt with through comedy. Mm. But um, yeah, what do you think of Joe Strummer's score in Walker? 
Oh, it's just it's like many of like many of other Alice Cox films. Like it's it's a really cool score. Yeah, it's you know? so different. It's it's not at all what I was expecting for this kind of film. Mm, it's uh, he he has a great taste for for music. Alice Cox when it comes to his films, and one of his films he actually ended up being recut. They actually replaced the music, and he was very upset by that. Actually, in one of his later films. <laughs> so yeah, uh, yeah, that, but I. Yeah, Walker is just like people gotta check it out if they haven't seen it. It's, <laughs> it's it's weird because it was released on Criterion, but it's kind of like buried at the same time. It's not one that's like as readily available. I think the Criterion released in like two thousand eight or something, and but I didn't even know that <laughs> until I looked it up and I was like, oh wow, I can get this on Criterion. That's pretty cool. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of I. I think it's maybe having kind of a resurgence. I mean, there was this screening of the film a couple of years ago, but I, I, I don't know what's happening with. It. I mean, Alex Cox is frankly kind of a forgotten filmmaker. You know, he doesn't. He's not had like a big career resurgence like, let's say, William Friedkin, who's so beloved by people. You know. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's 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 true. Like Friedkin, even just. I mean, I don't know. If, I don't think Bug was as huge of a mainstream success. But that to me felt like the return of Friedkin mm. with Bug, and now n- now with Killer Joe, I think he's officially back in action. So I hope he makes some mm. more good films. Oh, have you uh, seen the taglines for Walker on IMDb? <laughs> Something about Rambo, right? Yeah, it was on the poster. It says before Rambo, before Oliver North. <laughs> wow, what what are they trying to sell here? <laughs> yeah, well, that's the thing too. Is like. I think Ebert and uh, a critic by the name of Michael Wilmington were really put off by the idea of like almost like a like a Rambo approach to the graphic violence, you know, the the blood squibs, just the the graphic nature of it was really off putting to them hmm. in the midst of this humor. Like again, it is kind of a mishmash of tones, but it's it's still really clever. Yeah, I mean that's of course that's what I feel. That's kind of about feel about many of Alex Cox's films. I mean, there is this mismatch of tone. You're kind of going, you know, what is this? Yeah, but I love that experience. I love oh, yeah. going, what is this? Yeah, and, I mean, uh, how many how many fucking trailers do you see at the theater where you go, oh, I know where this movie is going. Oh, I can see how this is going to play out. Oh, you know, like the the romantic comedy or the um, London is falling. Um, oh yeah, oh yeah. I mean, that's disaster. All, I mean, of course, that's the problem with Hollywood because if you try to make a film in Hollywood, you have to pitch, <laughs> you know, your story, and they have to, you know, they go, well, what is this? Is it is it a comedy or is it you know? And you might say, well, it's a horror comedy, and they go, huh? Can we market that? You know, like they don't like that stuff. They don't like it when you go, you know, to, into make a film that's just different from anything else out there. They right. need to know if they can market it. And somebody like Alex Cox, you know. I, you know, he's never going to make another studio film. Never. You know what? I think people, especially in light of the success of Breaking Bad and how that was just like a universally beloved show, I think if Highway Patrolman were, were to come out now, especially after the fact that something like No Country for Old Men won Best Picture, I think this would have a nice um, following. I wouldn't say it would be huge. It's definitely 
a conventional film, but Highway Patrolman is, you know, it's sort of him going back to his roots in a way, but it's also him finding a nice middle ground between like a conventional narrative slash character arc with Mm. genre and his own sensibilities, I think. Yeah, I told you that this was, this was his uh, favorite film of his, actually. Um, it's very he, simple. Yeah, and also he did say that he felt Walker was his best work, but this is his favorite, just personal favorite. Interesting. And, yeah, and I when I watched it, I mean, I knew who Alice Cox was, but I, I was expecting some kind of crazy satire, like his other films. But it's so much more serious and dramatic than... He's early. Yeah. It doesn't go into that parody or comical character, though, from what I remember. It's on the film. Uh, it's it takes its subject matter very seriously. Yeah, when something bad happens, you're not laughing. <laughs> you know, like when his car breaks down, even though friend. you know it's a piece of shit. Yeah, and his friend dies. You know, that's- God, that is. I gotta say, I thought. There's a sequence about an hour into this that had me on the edge of my seat when you know how things are going to play out. But a lot of it is playing out through the uh, police scanner, um, you know, the radio in the car. Mm. And uh, I just thought this was impeccably well done. And one of the highlights of his filmography was just this um, chase sequence where the car breaks down and he has to literally run... (laughs) <laughs> to try and save his friend. And you just don't know what's going to happen when he finally gets there. And it takes his time. Like, he employs um, what you would call these really l- moving master single takes, where it's, there's hardly any cuts, if any at all, at that moment, where the car breaks down and he's running yeah. after having, you know, his basically his, his leg severely yeah. injured that's what i that struck me the first time i saw it It was like whoa what's going on here i'm not seeing any cuts it's all happening in one single take and it's like he's experimenting with something here trying out i guess like hmm what if i don't do the reverse reversing you know what if i just shoot everything in one take and that's kind of i think that was kind of un- that was very unusual at the time because nowadays of course you know with you know birdman and the revenant but Back in those days, I don't think anybody did that. Besides. No, I don't think... I mean, obviously, a lot of European cinema... C- cinema? <laughs> a lot of European cinema definitely did that kind of approach. Like, it's it's very neorealism to mm. just sort of let a scene play out. It's less about being showy and stylistic and more about being in the moment and reacting to something biotic, something yeah, it, visceral. Yeah, this one feels it has that kind of almost what I call the this kind of documentary feel to it that you would feel maybe like with something like a one of those old William Friedkin films, you know, that like it doesn't feel as sty- it's not as stylish as his other films, you know. It's, oh, totally. Yes, yeah. and it's like I think Alex Cox might take it seriously because of the fact that of the setting and because you know with the Repo Man and like Sid and Nancy and Walker, like he had some. You know, there the worlds he was dealing with were kind of absurd. Mm-hmm. But here he like, I think he takes his, you know, I mean, he obviously he has a great affection for Mexico, but I think he also he takes it very seriously. You know, I think he feels 
critical sorry for just what a con- what kind of country it is and how hard it is and you know yeah. he's not he's not making fun of it at all i think he feels incredibly empathic towards this culture and i it's it's not necessarily in the foreground but there is a little hint of frustration towards America's lack of care and consideration for the war on drugs at the mm. time. Because, again, just, her, you know, even if it's a quick scene, it's hurling a bottle of tequila at, at George Bush on the TV. Uh, and honestly, we all wanted to hurl bottles of tequila at George Bush and his son, for that matter. Yes. So Five, five stars. <laughs> yeah, essentially. That's the moment I was like, okay, perfect. Perfect movie. Um, but no, even the way, like, the final confrontation plays out it did remind me of like breaking bad in its unpredictable nature and just you know anything can happen what's gonna how they gonna confront each other who's gonna go down um Mm. and it's it's a little bit of a satirical slant at the way things play out for pedro in terms of like the boss never finding out what he really did with the drugs and him getting a uh, promotion and uh, a medal <laughs> or something. Yes. I mean, uh, yes, I guess Alex Cox wants to kind of, you know, take a sly, uh, you know, uh, you know, what do you call it? Uh, he wants to kind of, kind of present the whole job as a higher patrolman as being a little bit ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, he does. He does. In, in the same way that repo men experience... Mm. <laughs> ridiculous ups and downs with their profession the same thing happens here where um there there are humorous moments there are scary moments with like you know car accidents uh man the guy with the leg that was severed at one point oh yeah that was pretty messed up but you know i really liked following this character i thought he was very likable yeah the acting is uh good all around it's it's again. It's not like his earlier films. It's pretty, uh, very. Um, the acting is much more that in that kind of naturalistic kind of uh, acting. You just let them act, let them perform, and there's no kind of like, you know. Again, he's not making a satire here, really. Uh, so it, the actors are, and it, of course they're all Mexican. They're they're no. This is not an English film. I think at some point they speak. Isn't there some scene where they speak English? I, I think- remember. Yeah, I think there might be. There's some guy, there's some German guy. Isn't some German guy in, a, in the bar? He's trying to sell them. Yeah, yeah, that's right. They they give him German beer. They, and the first, the guy's like, oh, his friend's like, you know, no, no, we drink Mexican. And then he drinks a Mexican. It's like, <laughs> ugh. Then he drinks a German beer. And it's... <laughs> Maybe that's Alex Cox's, again, way of inserting some political commentary. <laughs> mm. you know, or just at least the way people interact with each other from different cultures. Yeah, you know, I, that's what I really dig about Alice Cox being this kind of uh, rebellish and very outsider filmmaker. But, you know, unlike the ones who came around in the 90s, and I'm thinking, like, when we talk about Mexican, you know, film, like, look at Robert Rodriguez, who just, you know, just went out of a way to make stylish action films. Really. Yeah, and, another guy who could have been influenced by Repo Man. Yeah, and probably maybe straight to hell, you know. yeah. Yeah, no, definitely. But it feels like, you know, that's why I kind of like him a bit more than, you know, Rodriguez or Tarantino. Like, he has some, he wants to, you know, I love the fact that he actually, like, cares about these countries and he wants to say something. 
and he wants to bring up the fact that, you know, look at these countries and look how bad they are. You know, he's not simply out to make, you know, oh, I'm going to make the next, I'm going to try and make the next, you know, Repo Man or something, make something like that. No, no, he wants to go further, go in different directions, and he wants to address these issues, you know. And yeah, I, he doesn't romanticize, you know, the yeah. countries he's in or their locales or even the characters. I mean, as likable as Pedro is, he, he does make some <laughs> impulsive and sloppy decisions <laughs> throughout this movie, including getting involved with a prostitute. Yeah, that does not end. <laughs> and the way that yeah. ends, it's very bittersweet, where it's like, okay, I've, I've at least gotten out of a dead-end uh, career, but now I'm kind of... I'm kind of a slave to these two women in a way. <laughs> you know, and it's, it's, I don't know. I, I, I wouldn't say it's got kind of a narrow view on women, but you know, there is kind of like the overbearing Mercedes rule kind of woman as the wife and you know, the prostitute with the heart of gold kind of <laughs> uh, approach to the woman he's having an affair with. Sure. So it's a little narrow-minded in that regard, but that's yeah. that's kind of minor because we are focusing primarily on on Pedro's. You know, it's essentially a character study, and that's something I hadn't seen done this way from Alex Cox yet. No, it's it's uh, it's very interesting, and uh, the the filmmaking here. It's I mean, it's fascinating that the use of one takes. It's that's not easy. No, definitely not. I mean, and there at some point there's a scene. It's a funny behind the scenes story where he there's a scene that, where he has to shoot a dog. There's rabies. You know. Oh uh, right, yeah. That's yeah, what, that's and, one of my favorite moments. Yeah, which is you don't see it get shot. It's actually off screen. Um, but <laughs> they had a dog, and the guy with the dog said, uh, "Okay, you got three dogs, so you got three takes." <laughs> <laughs> it's like, and Cox is like, but I'm not going to shoot the dog. <laughs> and then, no, you know, this isn't like, cannibal Holocaust, people. No, but the, the Mexican really fought. He was like, <laughs> he's going to shoot the dog. Uh, oh, but, but the, the best thing is like, the the second he shoots the dog, everyone in the community just starts applauding. <laughs> and then like a woman comes up to him and he's like, um, you're going to, you're going to pay me for, for the chicken that you shot. <laughs> Yeah, it's just that, that there's where the, the the humor comes in, of course. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's the moment of levity throughout all the craziness taking place is is pretty spectacular. Yeah, and it's and it's it works. I mean, it's like, oh yeah, it, there are going to be these absurd moments, you know. <laughs> yeah, cuz it's Alex Cox and he's he, that that's kind of what I like about him the most is his sense of humor. Um, mm-hmm. but here again, playing in a mostly dramatic serious realm, he pulls it off quite beautifully like when he finds his friend dying in his arms it's really emotional mm. there's nothing funny about that at all because he set the tone so um well from the start that you kind of just you go you, you you go along with this character through thick and thin and um this is this is a fascinating world that you don't normally get to see too so I, I really, really appreciate you making sure I see this. <laughs> yeah, I told you to see it like at the, yesterday. Like you gotta check this one out because it's one of Alice Cox's like 
really one of his more unusual films. Speaking yeah. of unusual, we're going to pretty much end on one final conversation with three businessmen. Yeah, I can just, first of all, I recommend... Uh, oh, you can talk about the winner, too, real quick, oh, if yeah, you wanted to. I just wanted to recommend... Uh, he made a film, it was made for BBC, uh, it was called Death and Compass. Oh, right, sorry. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, which was originally supposed to be like 15 minutes long, but then he got some more fun- He got some funding from the Japanese guys, and he was allowed to make it into a 90-minute film. It's this really bizarre film. I, I, I didn't quite know what to make of it. Like, it's not in terms of, like, good or bad necessarily, but, like, I was watching this going, like, is this supposed to be, like, a Blade Runner science fiction film? Because it's so, the style of the film is so strange. Uh, it, it's, uh, it's got, um, oh, what's the name? We just talked about him, the actor. Uh, oh, God, John Frankenstein. What's his name? Peter, Peter, Boyle. Peter Boyle. Yeah, plays a detective in the film who's trying who's trying to solve this, strange murder hap- murders happening in the city and it's based on a short story that's like 30 pages long and so he's taking a short story and really dragged it out uh, and he in this film Alex Cox is doing that one take thing that he did with the Highway Patrolman and uh, it is there are some very odd things I, I recommend checking it out because I it was fascinating to watch I must say uh, Christopher Eccleston is in the film um, and that act, and the actor who's in Free Businessman is in the film as well. Um, who plays um, oh the guy with the mustache? What's his name? Oh is right, it? Miguel Sandoval or something. I think. Yeah, he's in the film. So yeah, I I recommend checking that one out. Definitely Compass. That's that was a weird one. Uh, I like weird. The, yeah, and the 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 winner, which was supposed to be this. I guess it was supposed to be an attempt to go back into mainstream. Phil was an ordinary guy with an extraordinary gift for making money. He's been on a winning streak for five weeks and he hasn't lost once. I love this guy. I just get so damn lucky. <laughs> now, a lot of people want your little boy to lose. He is not gonna lose. The girl wants to marry him. And this together. Why do you only play on the Sundays? The mob wants to kill him. Well, I owe some people a lot of money. Louise. Million dollars, and his brother just wants a piece of the pie. Why did you come? I came with dad, he's dead. Somebody shot him dead. It, lo- it looks like a very Tarantino kind of uh, ripoff, right? Yeah, it, it, it's simple like the cast when you have Michael Madsen. I'm just like, all right, straight to video Tarantino ripoff. Yeah, I, I've seen Tarantino. I mean, like, for example, what's it called? Things to do in Denver when you're dead. Yeah, and then there's two days in the valley. There's yeah. there's others. Yeah, this one has that kind of like okay, this was probably greenlit because of Pulp Fiction or whatever. But it is you know I watch it going like okay, this was recut by the studio, but there is some there is that it's it's all done in one takes again, um, <laughs> and it has that Alice Cox vibe to it at times. There is that sense of satire to it. He's trying to make fun of Las Vegas. But it is kind of a mess, unfortunately. Um, there are some stylistic moments here and there. Uh, oh, there's a really cool stylistic moment in Definite Compass I had to talk about. There's like a scene with Peter Boyle sitting in his office or something. And it's com- his background, the background is completely dark. But then the phone rings and he picks up the phone and it's Christopher Eccleston. And suddenly the background, you start to see Christopher Eccleston in the background. 
that it lits up. Oh, that's kind of cool. Yeah, I was like, oh, it's unusually stylistic. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, he sometimes he'll try to get, get be a little flashy, occasionally, and uh, yeah. So you know, he is a an filmmaker who can who occasionally will do something like that. You know, so I like those little sparks of like, oh, yeah, they, you can see like Alice Cox, he's trying to do something here. You know. Like in the winter, also, it's a point where like he's in this guy's in the jail cell and he's talking to the uh, to the um, the guard, and suddenly the guard just looks up, and suddenly there's this flash of white light, and suddenly the the guard has like this crazy hair, and he's like, ah, "I'm not gonna let you out" or something. <laughs> and then he comes back to me. <laughs> just this weird, like, "Whoa, what was that?" So yeah, but um, yeah, the, the Alice Cox in the '90s. This is where he is not making mainstream movies anymore. He is uh, making these low-budget films. And he's entered into this, like, style of doing everything in one takes, which is how Free Business, Free Business Man was shot. Good segue. Uh, yeah. <laughs> no, it's, it's very true. It's like a quirky little travelogue across, across Liverpool. Shifting markets. Oh, absolutely. It's economic revitalization. That's the key, isn't it? It has to be. It must be. And we're on the edge of it, Frank, the cutting edge, the independent businessman. Once it give you access to what you need, when you need it, only then will you be on the path to personal and professional success. Here, here, well said. But it's also part my dinner with Andre with a little bit of waiting for Godot. Like, the way they, the way they, um, you know, the, the way they meet initially over dinner in this hotel restaurant, I was like, okay, is this going to be the movie where they're just sort of waiting and hanging out? And <laughs> why the heck, for no reason, does the, ho- the hotel staff, the restaurant staff, do they just disappear? Like, cause I, they both order dinner and then nobody comes for a very long period of time. That is a very, very strange moment because they're sitting there in the hotel at the beginning and they hear like the sound of like what appears to be, uh, Something, something dropping on the floor. They hear mm-hmm. like this metallic sound, and then you look at, and they're gone. <laughs> and I could not make any sense out of that. I don't know what was going on there. Um, maybe there's something hap- something that's guiding them. <laughs> you know what this movie feels like? A dream. Yeah. It, <laughs> it feels like a weird, surreal dream. But yet it has very naturalistic conversations, like I mentioned, the kind you'd find in a Richard Linkletter movie, mm. where, where two characters just met each other, and they're sort of learning how to connect through conversation, and these conversations are filmed in master shots without any breaks or cuts, and you know every scene there's an establishing shot, but there are also no standard shot reverse shots. Yeah, what do you, what do you think of that style? Actually, that I like it. I do. I mean, it de- it depends on the material, but I, I, I do have an affinity for these types of movies where two characters meet. They're not necessarily like minded, but they try different ways to, you know, connect. Mm. Whether they're just trying to decide on where to eat or like sort of mundane random things like this is not a plot driven movie it's very episodic and i kind of like that approach once in a while it's not something i want to see every time i go to the movies but in the midst of alex cox's filmography this is kind of an anomaly i guess because Hmm. it really is just about like the journey is the destination with two characters and i'm like 
I'm also thinking, well, what, where the hell is this third businessman going to show up? <laughs> yeah, it takes a long time. Indeed. <laughs> but yeah, like the the score um, and the striking um, portrayal of Liverpool uh, and just the weird places they wind up and the weird interactions they have. Like at one point they go to a Chinese restaurant <laughs> and they give them the fake food that's in the oh, window. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and I, I just I like their interaction together. It's, and it's also interesting interesting to see just Alex Cox as an actor in this. Yeah, he's been in some of his other earlier films as well. He shows up in uh, actually I saw him in The Winner, which was funny. He was in that. <laughs> he plays a Frenchman, and <laughs> then Rebecca De Mornay walks up and goes, "What's up with that guy? Does he really think he can fool anybody with his French accent?" <laughs> <laughs> That's his sense of humor again. Yeah, he he's definitely a better actor than Tarantino. I can. Say that about him. Uh, I mean, th- this movie is slow, but not in a way I, did, I found boring. It's kind of again that kind of hangout film. I would yeah. say. Yeah, it is just watching these two characters and uh, Miguel uh, again. Miguel um, Sandoval. <clears throat> Sandoval. He is just, I mean, uh, wonderful. <laughs> the film. Mm-hmm. Uh, talking about he's his- so friendly. <laughs> yeah, I, but it, kind of like in an overbearing way at times. <laughs> Yeah, he's so dependent on uh, Alex Cox, <laughs> like just yeah. around and trying to find his way around Liverpool, and and then trying to like. There's so many funny. There's like one scene I thought of that reminded me of American Psycho, where they're talking about like business cards. Yeah, I can see it, that. Yeah, <laughs> but of course, then he brings up the plutonium. Is <laughs> that <it> the plutonium <laughs> card? Oh, right. <laughs> he's like, I can call. Yeah, you just call and. And they'll they'll fix everything or something, you know. <laughs> what is it's it weird because like I feel like they, I don't know. They, they they both feel like they're playing a role within the movie. Like they're they're trying to say that they're these businessmen, but maybe there's something else. I don't know. <laughs> you're waiting for some kind of twist to happen. Yeah, but it, maybe it's just that they're just lost souls, you know, mm. trying to navigate through this world and it's weird how they wind up where they wind up at the end and that's when we when we meet the third businessman yeah it's interesting that this film kind of ends up where like for example straight to hell begins yeah totally alice cox has some i mean in some ways also highway patrolman like and actually at the end of death and the compass as well they just they end up at this just in the desert in the mountains or something like just, yeah and like the perfect. the third businessman is from chicago and at the very end like they all point in different directions and go oh look there's chicago there's lakeshore drive (laughs) i'm like what (laughs) that's so weird it's just a weird ending like i didn't love it i didn't it was more of a head scratcher but not in a way i would say was bad Mm. Uh, it's got some again just what I can, how I can recommend to Alice Cox to people who want to see Alice Cox films, just they're funny, and yeah. there are there are funny moments. And this one, when he's when he, um, oh, they're at the, they're at the restaurant and they're gonna have dinner, and suddenly he has a panic attack, right? Miguel Sandoval, <laughs> and he just he runs out, and suddenly like he he starts to uh, then it becomes really Muffet Python, and he like speeds up the footage. Mm-hmm. You notice that? Right. <laughs> and it's like he's wailing his arms around and going, ah! It's and like Benny Hill all of a sudden. Yeah, and then he falls on the, fl- on the ground and Alex Cox is like, kind of like, you know, what happened? And it's like, there was 
so much food. <laughs> <laughs> and I liked, I like when he's sitting in his hotel room and he's trying to read all these different books. <laughs> One's called like the multi-orgasmic man. Oh yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> and the other is like things you never knew existed. <laughs> so it's just oh, a, it's just a surreal, weird conversational comedy. Yeah, you got to give this to Alex Cox. He is unique, and he never makes the same movie, really. That's probably th- the best thing you can say. Um, I mean, like, there's there's a lot of reasons why to admire and appreciate his work. Yeah. Um, th- but even if even if you don't like him, you can. I think anybody will say, yeah, he is original and unique, and he doesn't repeat himself. Right. And mm. you know, you can you can view his work as satire or um sort of deconstructions of the of the way people interact and the way we sort of negotiate relationships with other cultures you can certainly find all these different interesting elements but you can also just look at his films aesthetically or like i mentioned with the cinematography it's just they 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 look completely original and they have great touches throughout, especially um, Repo Man and Sid and Nancy and Walker. They're they're even if he's tackling kind of like a biopic, he doesn't do it traditionally in any sense of of the. I mean, like I'll take a Walker over a Walk Hard. I mean, a <laughs> over Walk the Line, I should say. Or Ray, you know, like those. Just sort of Oscar Beatty biopics. Oh yeah, oh yeah, and I'm, uh, you know, I'm like looking forward to anything that he has in the works. I mean, Tomb Some Rashomon. I hope it will be some kind of maybe comeback for him in the uh, God in the world. You know. Yeah, like fingers some, crossed. I, I want to. I, I want to see him do something more. I think he has. I think he probably has some more movies in him. I like to think so. He does. He 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 seems to still have a lot of energy. I mean, he he has obviously um, become very jaded and cynical about Hollywood as well. He should. Yeah. But, um, I Whenever think he I can s- still if he could still utilize something like Kickstarter. Yeah, he start. Yeah, uh, and I and how he lives. I think when I see him in like some interviews, I think he just lives out uh, in a cabin somewhere mm-hmm. in the woods. Like, yeah, that's how he lives. He's just kind of isolated and Alice Cox, please come back. We all miss you. (laughs) (laughs) I completely concur with that a hundred percent. And as a fan of both Rashomon and Tombstone, if you're going to mash those up, I'm all for it. There was another film I didn't see. I have it on DVD. I wish I had time to see it, but it was called revenge, revengeous tragedy from 2002. Yeah. I know he's got a couple others like Searchers 2.0. Yeah, but this looks like a real film, so it could maybe something to check out. So, yeah, yeah, you know, and I I like that he's anti-establishment sort of counterculture, but he 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 portrays it respectfully. Yeah, he doesn't like. I mean, he'll poke fun, but like he pokes fun at Scientology and Repo Man, <laughs> um, and Christian conservatism and all sorts of different things, but um. I, I think he also doesn't take his own views too seriously, which is great because you should have reverence and um, a playfulness about yeah. the way you approach material. 
Yeah, oh, the, and I'm looking at his credits here. I see that he is, uh, oh, yeah, he's credited for Fear and Loading Las Vegas. He wrote the screenplay. I think he was going to direct that, actually. I think he was also going to direct Three Amigos, which would have been great. Oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, so it's like, yeah, kind of his career, is, it's a bit of a missed opportunity in some ways that he didn't get to maybe go further. I mean, Walker definitely, it's one of those cases where, like, I wonder what would happen if Walker had been a success, you know, like where his career would have gone he After probably that. maybe like a Paul Verhoeven kind of trajectory for his career. Mm. Maybe I think I think he's even said that. Like, oh yeah, I could have been the next maybe Paul Verhoeven. You know, could have been that maybe. Mm. Yeah. Maybe that I heard that and it seeped into my subconscious, and that's why I thought that. <laughs> <laughs> um, let's give our top three Alex Cox films. Okay, what would be yours? I'll let you go first this time. Uh, number one, I'd probably say uh, Repo Man. Uh, it's just such an enjoyable film. Of course. Uh, number two, I'll probably say Walker, because that movie is just so awesome. <laughs> yeah, just and batshit weird at times. Yeah, <laughs> yeah uh, just so relevant still to this day. Uh, and then I probably would say maybe, I don't know, maybe... Either Highway Patrolman or maybe Sid and Nancy. I'm not sure. A little split there. Uh, yeah, that's that's a tough call. Number three for me. That's a, that's that's the weird. I sort of feel the same way. But I mean, mine. I guess I'm gonna go Walker for number three. Number two, Highway Patrolman, and hmm. number one, Repo Man. That's just how I feel right now. But Ugh. I think it's more just like Highway Patrolman was a genuine surprise at how yeah. involved I was with it, and you know, I mean, it's it's certainly not as crazy or surreal as some of his other films, or it doesn't have that sort of manic energy of Sid and Nancy. But I just I just like that I got to watch kind of a conventional character study, and you know, it's from a different country too. Yeah, it's more it's kind of like again. It's kind of like the same with Tarantino with uh, Jackie Brown. Like, oh, yeah. yeah, look, I can do something else. I can. I'm not just somebody who makes big, flashy, like, incredibly stylish films. I can also make conventional films. Uh, well, thanks a lot for being on the show, Philip. I really enjoyed talking with you, man. Oh, thank you for having me on. I hope I was able to uh, be a good uh, guest, and maybe. You know, oh yeah, maybe. you'll you'll be welcome back next year for sure. Um, mm. What? Let's see. Where can people find more of your work online if they're curious to read or follow you in any way? Um, well, uh, I, you can check out my blog, which is the Swedish uh, Cinemasochist podcast. And uh, No, skip the podcast, maybe. <laughs> uh, but you can follow me on Twitter, Hollow Shape. Uh, you can maybe even follow me on Facebook, if you will. Uh, that's perfectly fine. Um, yeah, that's where you can find me. And I don't know what's going to happen to me now. Next year, I don't know if maybe if I'll be working maybe in film or now that suddenly I've I got a friend who wants to make short films with me, I'm maybe oh, I'll be heading somewhere. Yeah, that'd be great. Yeah, so our next episode is actually going to be in a week because um, I managed to just jam pack August, the beginning here, <laughs> which is totally great because uh, you get a little bit more Directors Club before my break in September. Yeah. But yeah, the I, next episode is on James Cameron. Oh. <laughs> which is a kind of a f- complete flip side to Alex Cox in terms of budget, 
<laughs> and I'm not even the biggest James Cameron fan, but there are some incredible films from his filmography that I'm excited to talk about with um, former guest Eric Childress, who just tends to be my sort of summer blockbuster escapist entertainment go-to guest because he was on for Spielberg and Christopher Nolan and Robert Zemeckis. So it only feels appropriate that he should be on for James Cameron as well. Mm, I think I like Terminator and Aliens probably the best of his. Those are films I just look at and go, wow, these are so well made. And then you get to something like Avatar and it's like, eh, I don't know about this. Yeah, yeah, no, that's, but, we'll, we'll, we'll definitely be bringing yeah. that up. But I've, yeah, uh, I've, you'll, no, you'll be you'll be back next year, and uh, I really appreciate you coming on the show. People, you can check out directorsclubpodcast.com and send me an email at directorsclubpodcast at gmail.com. So thanks again for being on the show. Thank you for having me. All Hello. right. We'll talk to you soon for the James Cameron episode. Goodbye, everybody. There's a parking lot fighter alone in the tree. A fabulous disaster of an underground queen. She never took no for an answer. Never took no for an answer. Sometimes be fooled, flashing to earth as they reach for the moon, and never take no for a man. The best thing is like no the, the second he shoots the dog, everyone in the community just starts applauding, <laughs> and then like a woman comes up to him and he's like, "Um, you gotta you gotta pay me for for the chicken that you shot." <laughs> <laughs> Crystal meth, Pepsi. <laughs>